Blog Talk Radio. Network is proud to present Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness with your host, Brother Rudolph Muhammad. Preparedness on 
Well, talk radio, the keys, 107. Whew. Okay. Here we go again. Another week. But before we do anything, I have to give praise and thanks to the Creator. Call Him what you want. That one that is responsible for your and my existence. The one who is responsible for all that is, was, and ever will be. That one who is the author of everything that we see, hear, and even the things that we think of that we think are new ideas. It is that. Week 
in particular, the person that I am paying homage to, it's a real personal thing for me this week. And that is my mother. Because my mother is a retired school teacher from the New York City area. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, are from the New York City area or how many of you went to public school in the New York City area. But if you did, then you will understand somewhat what I'm talking about. Now, we're not talking about um, school back then. We're talking about school right now where the, the children seem to have all the rights in the world and all of those rights are doing are ensuring that they will remain illiterate uns- um, uncorrected and will ensure that the open enemy will never have to worry about them because they'll never be in an area or in a position to do anything to him because they have no training, very little education, no discipline, no experience, and there's no one to guide them in the right direction. And anyone who tries will be met with opposition and violence. The teachers cannot teach because they cannot gain control of their classroom. The educator, the other educators and those that assist them, the paraprofessionals, are powerless to do anything because you can't speak to them or discipline them. Is this by chance? Is it a coincidence? Or is it designed to be that way because this will help to keep them in a condition that um, the open enemy already knows? If they stay this way, then he'll never have to worry about them opposing him, nor will he have to fear them taking over. So, again, I'm talking about to my mother, who, again, was a school te- a retired school teacher of the New York City public school system. And I remember very well she used to work in a program called the DISTAR program. And the DISTAR program was a reading program, a literacy program. And she used to take me along with her as one of her, um, I want to say this respectfully, I would never call myself a guinea pig, but as one of her laboratory, one of their laboratory experiments, because all of the teachers that were in the program, I knew and they knew me, 
they all had, they each had equal right to do to me whatever needed to be done if it was thought that I had stepped out of line or said anything that was disrespectful. I came up in that era of it, the village that was raising me. And so to that school teacher who tirelessly did what she did, went about her day, and provided for myself and my brothers and sisters above and beyond, it seemed like, um, you know, we never really wanted for it. I mean, well, yeah, we wanted what we saw everybody else having, and we wanted certain things, but we never really needed anything. I don't ever remember going to bed hungry unless I chose to go to bed hungry. I don't ever remember a time that we didn't have a hot meal, even when it seemed like there was no food in the cupboards. She always managed to provide and pull something out, and to the naked eye, it looked like it was hardly anything there, but we ended up full. She uh, dispensed discipline and justice very wisely, even when we didn't agree with the way it was done. As I look back on it now from being a parent, and see, there is no clear-cut way that it's done. Uh we each, uh, it's a learning process, and each child is different, so therefore each mechanism that you use and each routine that you use for their discipline and guidance changes. So to her, this is... Um, dedicated to thank her for all that she did to inspire me, to teach me, to nurture me, to instill within me the morals, principles, and values that I have now of public service, community service, and just servitude in general to humanity. So, again, this is to Geneva Boyd. Big ups to you. Job well done. And thank you. Now, let's go. Let's move into the current events of this week. Okay. We had a few things that went on this week that caught national and international attention. Okay? 
would you like to talk about first? First, let's talk about the earthquake in China. The death toll is still rising on it. It's still um, going on, and it will for quite some time due to the geographic location of where things happened, the very rural section of China that it was in, and the different provinces that are there. We may never know exactly how many people were affected or killed, but what we do know is that there was loss of life, and this, again, this is not due to that province. They've uh, witnessed this before and will probably witness it again because, again, the geographic location that we're talking about, they sit right on the fault line, and Every so often, periodically, they are vulnerable to the shifting of the tectonic plates, which causes the earthquake. What I will say is, for those of us who have never experienced, for those of you, who have never experienced an earthquake, it is a very humbling time and a humbling existence because you're talking about a time in which you have no control over what is going on. You don't know how long it's going on, how long it's going to last for, all you can do is hold on and keep from using the bathroom on yourself. When the shaking stops, then what you do is you assess where you are and you try and uh, get out of if you are inside somewhere, you want to try and get out of it and get out into the open and away from tall structures because the foundations have been so weakened and compromised, you don't know how long they're going to stay up. You don't know at what point they're coming down. And so it's better to be in an open area if you can get there. Now, if you happen to be inside, then, of course, what you want to try and do is you want to get to an area where you are, if you can get into a door sill, which is representative of a foundational wall in that structure, because that will help with keeping things from falling on your head. Of course, you want to protect your head. You want to crouch down. Again, at all, at all costs, you want to protect your head, debris from falling on it. 
you want to try and put something, if you have a mask, a mask, or tuck your head into your shirt, because you want to monitor what you're breathing with all of the falling debris and everything. There are a lot of airborne things there that you may not want to inhale, get into your nose, get into your mouth, get down into your lungs. You want to protect your respiratory system. If, see, we're doing a lot of infants this week. If you have an earthquake response kit and you have time to get it, then you want to put your goggles on, put your mask on, put your helmet on. Get your whistle. Put your gloves on. And again, like I said, just hold on and pray while the, shake, while the shaking is going on. And when the shaking stops, you want to try and make your way out to the outside if you are inside. Going into buildings to try and rescue someone else, unless you're trained to do it, you should not attempt it, lest you will become a victim yourself. The best thing that you can do is to notify the authorities of where help is needed. And this is the job of the first responder to confirm the incident and then, if possible, to uh, do life-saving procedures to sustain the life or lives of the individuals, if possible. If not, Simply confirming the incident, meaning notifying the proper authorities, calling 911 if the system is still up, giving them a good location as to where the problem is, and then a good description as to what type of resources are needed. Now, with that being said, now, let's go into it, because I know that everyone is waiting to hear what is going to be said about Boston, Massachusetts, and the incident that took place. Well, with that bombing, I have a few questions for you. What would you have done if you were there? And survived it. What would you have done if you were there and witnessed other people getting injured? Would you have been able, qualified, capable of rendering aid to them? Would you have been able emotionally to contain your own emotions enough? to render aid to them? These are questions that, again, I said this was going to be a what-if show. 
So the answer is wrong. No answer is incomplete. No answer is off base because we, this is a hypothetical situation, and so it's going to um, derive from hypothetical responses because it, it, none of these are actual because no one really knows what they're going to do at the point something happens. This is why we do skills, we do trainings, we do drills to try and teach each other how we should respond, but the real test is at the point that it actually happens, who actually responds the way that it was actually practiced. So, Once again, the question here is, what are we going to do? What would you do? What would you have done? Would you have been able to do anything? I have a few um, students that we're going to interview to get their perspective of it, because, again, a lot of them were sitting in class as this was going on, and they've been listening to it, too, and a lot of them intellectually, um, knowledge-wise, are on the same plane that you are. Even though they're sitting in a class now, if they haven't been taught what to do, then their response is going to be rough and generic, just as yours is. So we want to inter put some of them on the spot and interview them and see what they have to say about it. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, yes, let's talk, let, let us um, interview a few students right now Let's interview a few students right now, and let's get their take on this um, bombing at the marathon. You, we are live in the classroom of the Bepper Stuyvesant Volunteer Ambulance Corps, a.k.a. Save a Life Rescue Squad, where there's an, there are a couple of instructors here, and there are a couple of students that are actually going through an emergency medical responder, a first responder class at this time. Um, hold on one second, and let me get their attention. Let me see if they'll respond to me while I'm on the radio with you guys, okay? Um, hold, hold on, hold on. Um, um, instructor, you and your class, you are all live on Blog Talk Radio, Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness, of course, I'm the host, Brother Rudolph Muhammad, but the world is listening. So say hello to the world. Hello. Yes, now, the, the the focus of this show this week, we're talking about the bombing, we're talking about what went on at the marathon, and we're talking about the responses of everyday individuals like yourselves. Now, here's the question. Oh, I have one right here. Right here. 
Um, sir, what's your name? Lieutenant Johnson. Lieutenant Johnson. Lieutenant Johnson, okay. What would you have done if you were there? Uh, well, I would have provided first. Hold on, hold on. Let me say this. Don't give the answer that you think I want to hear. I want you, based on what you know at this point, tell what you could have done, what you may have done, what you think you may have done, Based again, based on exactly your level of training, your level of knowledge at this point. Um, How could you have helped? Well, I would have provided uh, first aid help to all those who were injured um, and just pretty much tried to help them get uh, get order with the, you know, with all the chaos and everybody running the stream, and I definitely had my hands involved in that. Oh, uh, we, we have another, another season, another season DMT just walked in the door. Sir, sir, you're live on Blog Talk Radio with Brother Rudolph Muhammad, Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness. We're talking about the bombing at the uh, marathon. Now, you've been an EMT for how long? Five years. Five years. Okay. Can I have your name, please? Raquel Robinson. Raquel Robinson. Okay. How could you have helped if you were there? I'm sorry. We're experiencing technical difficulties. Let me um. Let me close. Let me close. All right, Mr. Rob, EMT Robinson. I'm sorry. The qu- the question is, um, if you were there. If you were right in the middle of it when it happened, what could you possibly, with your level of knowledge and understanding of emergency medicine now, what could you have done or could you do to help in a situation like that? Stabilize, try to calm people down. What is the first thing that you would do, though? Find the seriously injured people. Okay, good. Good. Oh, oh, I have one right here. Ma'am, who are you? What's your name? Cadet James. Cadet James. Okay. At this point in your training, at this point in your training, okay, what do you think you could have done to help if you were there and you didn't get killed in the blast? Um, I would have separate the people that were seriously injured and not so seriously injured and treat the ones that were more injured than others. Okay. Let me go to the, uh, uh, I have one of the instructors here. Sir, your name is? Stevie here. And how long have you been in EMT, sir? Uh, since 1997. <laughs> okay, sir. Well, what could you have possibly done to help out in that situation if you were there or if it were to happen right here where you are now? What is it that you can do with your level of training? First of all, try to keep everybody calm psychologically and let them know that throughout all the chaos and everything, there is some sort of an area of safeguarding that they can go to, pretty much. Okay. Oh, I have another one over here, another instructor here. Uh, ma'am, your name? XO Robinson. Okay, XO Robinson. XO, oh, you're the executive officer here? Yes, sir. Okay, how long have you been at EMT, ma'am? I've been in EMT for approximately two years. Okay, how long have you been a first responder 
trained in first aid CPR? Uh, over 20 years now. Well, with your level of knowledge, your training, your skills at this point, what could you do to assist someone who may have been a victim of some of that hellebloo that went on? Well, because so much was going on at that time period, I think for most of us is to understand our our level of, of care that we are able to provide, basically our level of training. If we're able to have, provide a greater level of training, then we should assume that greater task. However, if we're able to assume just the basics, then that should be the task that we assume. But at that time, I think my basic instinct would have been to be able to, to provide a, uh, a safe place for people to be able to go so that at that point we are able to treat the people because there was so much, one, emotionally going on as well as unsafe within that within that scene, within that environment. Uh, immediate safety would have been the immediate thing, and then we could deal with uh, the emotional issues that were being that were going on, as well as the uh, the physical injuries that were happening. So most importantly, I think the people who were there were trained, uh, and maybe not trained, but just uh, compassionate, compassionate towards mankind, so that they would be able to deal with the needs of the people and the injuries that were there. And the injuries were so grave uh, in the sense that most people were either amputated and as the four people who were who were killed during that event. Um, unfortunately, if the people who were not trained uh, were not there, the circumstances would have been more grave. I was listening to a radio show or a news show earlier today in which uh, a victim and her husband were talking about the events. And immediately she began to run when it happened, one, because your adrenaline kicks in and you're running for that safe place, someplace to go. And once she found that safe place, that's when she and her husband and other people were able to hover down and to then render aid as best as they knew possible. So at that time, their level of training was things that they perhaps have saw on television and things that other people have told them. And the most important thing was that they knew how to create a tourniquet, how to stop the bleeding, how to save uh, most of the life and sever a limb. And because they were that quick acting, that quick thinking, and provided a safe environment to be able to go into to do those things, I think it made the, the incident a lot better than what it could have been, as unfortunate as it was. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Exo Robinson, who, again, is an EMT first responder who lives up in the Binghamton, New York area, which is a very rural community, not like the city of Boston, where everyone up there just about has to be trained in some type of first aid and CPR because just of their geographic location. Uh, we have an, I have another responder here. Um, so what's your name? James Poynton. James Point, and uh, what's your um, level of training? I'm an EMT, and I'm also a New York State certified trainer for the Homeland Security Emergency Services for the state of New York. Oh, whoa, okay. Well, with that being said, okay. So now, sir, let me ask you, based on all the reports that, you, that you've heard, you've seen the news, you've been following it, I know you have, um, what is your take on the response effort 
um, the, um, um, you know, the expediency of the response effort, the ability for the um, to manage what they did and did it really make a big difference in the outcome of a lot of those patients? Well, basically, I feel that the response of the Boston Fire Department and EMS services was very quickly because it was an unexpected attack from which occurred that day, and no one was really expecting that to happen. So I commend the EMS workers, fire department workers, and police workers from the city of Boston, and they were able to turn a triage tent that was meant just for minor injuries and bruises for the runners and anyone else that was attending the marathon turned into a major disaster tent and was able to attend to the wounds of majority of the people who were hurt during the blast. All right, sir. Well, let me let me ask you this question. All right. Now, again, according to the reports that you heard, according to what you saw in the news, um, how well prepared or well trained do you think those responders were to deal with this type of incident? Well, I feel like they were properly trained to take care of the incident because as soon as the blast happened and they saw the people injured, it was a immediately able to jump into action and to attend to the wounded and clear the scene and make sure that no one else was hurt or injured if there were any other devices or were devices that may have went off during the marathon besides the two that went off. What is the number one rule for you as a responder when an incident like this happens? It's to maintain the safety of myself, my partner, and then the patient. So once I recognize that myself and my partner are in no imminent danger, now my next responsibility is to make sure that I make sure the patient isn't in any imminent or danger, if they are, to at least try to pull them away from it so they won't get any further injuries. Okay, so now how do you combat that feeling? Because, again, we're trained to get in there. We're trained to be Johnny on the spot. We know that four to six minutes without oxygen, brain cells die. Once brain cells die, the individual is going to die. So our whole desire is to get in there and try and render help as soon as possible. But everything is going on. The bomb just went off. Stuff is blowing. There's shrapnel going all over. Glass is breaking. Buildings are falling. Pieces of cars are flying. People are yelling. People are screaming. There's blood shooting here. There's vomit and, and body excrement shooting over there. All kind of things are going on. What goes through your mind as a responder immediately when that thing happens? Well, basically, my first instinct is to help someone to make sure that the public and anyone else around it is able to be taken away from that and won't face any other injuries, and those who don't have injuries won't face any at the at that present time. All right. Now, how are all right? As far as training goes, as far as training, what type of training have you received that qualifies you? Now, listen to my question. When I say qualifies you, I mean that makes you a prime person to be in a situation like that. 
What kind of training have you received above and beyond what the average John Q. public gets? Well, I was also turned to acknowledge my surroundings. If I see something suspicious, to immediately alert someone of a same authority or a higher authority to able to, let's say, you know, if it's something that I see that looks suspicious for them to get rid of it, I get out to make sure that it's not something big or major. Okay. All right. So now, what, um, technically speaking, on, from the technical aspect, what is it that an individual with no training or no no formalized training, what could they do in a situation like that to help? Basically, guided. You see a way that is it exit or egress for us to move ourselves away from the situation to help guide those people there and to guide the mercy workers to the ones who need help and the ones that really need the care at that specific time. All right. Well, what, what, uh, who is to determine who gets treated first? What criteria? What determines who gets treated first? Because, again, okay, you may look at me and say, oh, it's just your arm, but to me my arm is just as important as that person's eye that's hanging out. So, who is to make that decision as to who's going to get the first uh, care and treatment, who's going where? How do you um, evaluate that kind of stuff? Well, you're evaluated by the quality of life. Which injury would most likely turn into someone actually dying? It would basically be which injury is the most severe injury and the which injury is the least likely injury for you to have a fatality from. That's how we determine which patient goes first and which one can is secondary. It also helps us to how we categorize our patients and make the priority ones get out first and the ones that can. Now, uh, all right, now, I don't, and this is just me talking, and again, I'm talking from the vantage point, not of being a seasoned veteran in this, but I'm talking from the other side now. I'm being the so-called, quote-unquote, devil's advocate. Uh, I'm speaking from the vantage point of John Q. Public, who knows nothing about this stuff. Um, how do you manage or control something like that? Because you're always overwhelmed, you're never going to have enough people at one particular place in time to deal with all of those injuries unless you already knew it was going to happen and it was a stage thing. But if it's just something that just ha happens haphazardly, how do you deal with that? It's something called on-scene triage, whereas you would, after the incident happened, unfortunately, you would go around, if you're the only person there at the time or only group of people there, you will go around surveying the scene, seeing which people are likely to die, which people are dead, which one have wounds that are serious but not that serious to whereas they are going to die and which ones are able to walk out on their own without any help or assistance or little to no assistance at all. 
It also helps us get some type of, I don't, how do you say it, some type of order is what we're looking at. We're looking at order because at the initial time of any type of accident, like you said, unless it's planned and you know that there's going to be this amount of patients, you will never have enough resources on scene that you need in order to treat everyone on the scene. So after you have found, after you have made your count, you would notify and request for additional resources according to the account which you have done on scene as of triage or on scene triage when you triage your patients. All right, thank you there, Mr. Pointer. Um, well, well, I think um, now, now I'm not going to go to a break right now. What we're going to do is, since the class is already in session, let's go back into the classroom. Let's go back into the classroom, and now let's talk to the class from a perspective of, and you guys will get a basic hint of some of the stuff that the class learns or that you learn in a class of emergency medical responders to decide whether or not, you know, you think you got what it takes to get into this line of work or to join my family, you know, those weird, strange, kooky individuals that run into the storm while everybody else is running out of it. One thing I'll take, I'll take this time to do this now and say we never give our firefighters enough um, big ups, props, praise. Remember, you're talking about a group of individuals that's running into a building that's on fire. They're running into a place that roaches are running out of. What type of mindset does that take? What type of emotional capacity does that take for an individual to put someone else's life and safety above their own? You think about that. And then now let's talk about, of course, our police, our law enforcement people. Law enforcement. Now, there's a lot of Again, hallelujah about law enforcement all across the United States, not just here in New York. There are many instances, and it, it, you know, we can sit back and name and come up with case after case of this one that was wrong and that one that was wrong. But by and large, we're talking about a few individuals that discredit or bring shame upon an entire system. In any of these instances, do we ever say that it is the entire police force that is um, bad? Do we just fire all of them and say the hell with them and none of them good and we just go back to the wild, wild west type things? No. We look at it for what it is. A few individuals who are within themselves are morally bankrupt are unethically bound or are, uh, have bad character. But by and large, um, law enforcement officers overall, they have to get their props also because, again, what are you talking about? You're talking about individuals that knowingly 
know that. Their spouses know that. But they do it every day. And they're not doing it for an enormous sum of money. So what makes an individual do a job like that? So they deserve their props, their praise, our praise, and thanks for the, for the job that they do also. Now for the unsung heroes. Well, let me keep going, because there's another group of individuals, and that's our paramedics. All over the world, people know about paramedics. Yes, the paramedics. Uh, if you're around my age, you remember the show that used to come on TV, Emergency, with the two firefighters from the L.A. County Fire Service, paramedics Gage and DeSalo, who were firefighters on the rig and went to school and became paramedics and then came off the rig and rolled around in the little utility truck and responded to medical emergencies. They used to get on the phone and talk to Rampard, which was the medical director in the hospital, and he would tell them, administer two vials of the, of the yellow drug, administer one vial of the red drug and bring them in. And I don't know about y'all, but I know how you used to watch it. I used to think that was so cool. That was like the coolest thing in the world. That's the job I wanted to do. Because it seemed like they just had nothing but excitement all the time. So, and, and really, they are paramedics. Knowledge-wise, pound for pound for what they know and what they are able to do in the field. They are doctors in the street. They are your street doctors. They are, uh, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and say it. They are the doctors in the hood. They are. Because they deal with so many life-threatening things that when dealt with properly, it extends your life. If dealt with improperly, it doesn't make a difference what facility they take you to. You are there. here. So for the, again, firefighters, for the police, for the paramedics, yes, you get a job well done. I'm a little prejudiced now. Yes, I am. I'm a little biased toward this next group that I'm talking about. Yeah, now we have to go, and we have to go, because everybody that does what they do, they get a little help from somebody. They say behind every good man, there's a good woman keeping him on point, right? They say when you find good children, that's because of the nurturing of good parents, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Who helps the paramedics when they get in the stuff? Yeah, that's right. Now I'm talking about my people here. I'm talking about my group of people, the EMTs, the Emergency Medical Technicians, the unsung heroes of society, the ones that ride around in the ambulance and pick you up, take you to your doctor's appointment, bring you back from your clinic appointment, the ones that respond to you to help you to open up the pill bottle when you can't open up the pill bottle at 2.30 in the morning. The ones that respond to you because you got the little bellyache and you know that just the sight of them helps to soothe your emotional state and causes you to be a little more calm. Yes, those people who, again, they're not getting rich on that job, so if they're in it for the money, I tell you right now, I 
I don't know any EMTs that take that job because they're trying to get rich. Generally, if a person takes a job as an EMT, they're generally a good person, a kind, compassionate, caring person. They're an individual who really cares and is trying to make a difference at the very basic level because they are the basic life support. They are the first ones that respond to you and that set the tone for whatever else is going to go on. So for those emergency medical technicians who go through anywhere from 150 to 250 hour classroom hours of training and who do their ride-alongs on the ambulance and then do their emergency room rotations, those individuals who have to know cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, for adults, children, and infants. They have to know how to clear a blocked airway. They have to know how to stop and control bleeding. They have to know how to deal with people that are going through diabetic emergencies, whether it's hyper, too much sugar in their system, or it's hypoglycemia, not enough sugar in their system. They have to deal with environmental emergencies, people who are going through heat cramps, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, frost nip or frost bite. They have to know how to deal with amputated parts or a bone's um, limbs and parts of the body. They have to know what specialty hospitals deal with what specialty criteria, how long it takes to get the person there. They have to know how to treat that person, what to look out for when their signs and symptoms start to change. They have to be able to put it together in their mind to understand where this person is going when they start getting those signs and symptoms that are leading them towards somewhere. They have to be able to read the signs as someone that's traveling on the highway reads them out. Oh, we have finished yet. That's just in their first month. Then they have to learn medical emergencies one and two. Medical emergencies go for anything that you could think of. How do you deal with that person having a seizure? What do you do for them? What don't you do for them? How do you deal with that person that's um, vomiting up blood? How do you deal with that person that blood is coming out the other end? How do you deal with the person who can't tell you what's wrong with them? How do you deal with that emotionally disturbed person who may have an altered mental status, but you have to, that EMP has to have the wherewithal to understand that, yes, they may be an emotionally disturbed person, but it's coming from something. Yes, they may have an altered mental status, but do they have an altered mental status just because they're crazy, or do they have an altered mental status because they are diabetic who sugar drops, or do they have an altered mental status because they have such a high fever and they're septic, or do they have an altered mental status because they've been affected by some environmental trigger that has caused their body to malfunction and go haywire? Or, have, or are they in an altered mental status because of something they ate or because their nutritional um, um, baseline is off? Are they going through an altered mental status because their body is so highly acidic? What is going on with them? This is what your emergency medical technicians learn in their classroom. So don't ever think that the people that ride around on the ambulance are just ambulance drivers. No, they're not just ambulance drivers. They are people who are 
trained in life-saving techniques and can save your life if need be. And then there's another group that goes along with them, and that's the very first level of um, rescuers in the chain link of survival. And those are your emergency medical responders. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. We're talking about your emergency medical responders. Yes, yes. The EMR used to be um, first responders. Now they're emergency medical responders. But those are the individuals. They're the ones who have the the um um the, the task of confirming the incident. Remember the canaries from back in the days of the coal miners? Well, the EMRs are the canaries of the rescuers because they're the first ones that go in. And a lot of times, a lot of them don't come out. But because of their selfless devotion to their job and their tireless sacrifice, we are able to save millions and hundreds of thousands of lives even if we lose a few of them. Oh, you already hear what I said. I said, yeah, yeah, there's a good chance that they may not make it out. But, again, they go through their job every day, and they don't get paid to do the job that they do. It's on a volunteer basis. So what makes an individual do stuff like that? This is why I said maybe some of you that are out there listening may qualify to join this family of mine. Yes, I'm very passionate and personal about it. I call it my family because it is my family. And I take ownership of my family because I teach my family everything that I've learned over my years. I go out and study and find other things to come back and teach them because I know that I'm training the most superior level of emergency medical responders and EMTs that will ever come out of any school. They're being taught right here at the Bedford-Stuyvesant Volunteer Ambulance Corps, a.k.a. Save a Life Rescue Squad, in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, New York. That's right. As goes Brooklyn, so goes the world. We're innovators of things. We are creators of things. We are not ones that are laid back and have a lots of fair attitude about things. We are individuals who constantly are striving to make things better and to make sure that we know and that we treat and that we teach to the highest expectations because we realize that they're dealing with your life. And since we're talking about it and we're in that classroom, Right now, what we're going to do, um, the man that's responsible for for all of this, okay, just walked in the door because, again, he's out at 72 years old. He's still out teaching and training and doing the things that need to be done to keep this organization afloat. And we're talking about Commander James Rocky Robinson. Sir, what I want you, what we were talking to them about, we're talking to the listening audience about the bombing. We're talking about the um, response of the first responders. And my question to them was, what if you were there? What could you have done with your level of knowledge and training that you have right now? And I went around and I asked all the students to give their input.
trying to get the listening audience to understand and to think based on what they know right now, if they were in that situation, how well would they fare? And all of this is leading up to why it is so important that every resident of the United States of America learns CPR and first aid at the least. Because when disaster strikes, every second counts, and you are the best indicator of disaster preparedness based on what you know and what you can do. But here, you uh, you say something to the people. First of all, I want to say that I'm very proud of my son, who is really, really inspirational. And uh, I started this Save a Life EMS Academy over 24 years ago. Why? Because people in poverty-stricken areas like Bed-Stuy, Harlem, Chicago, uh, places where you don't expect for people to be trained, was not getting trained. You know, there was in to every other thing except saving lives. So I said, being a veteran, being an EMS a responder, being a captain with FDNY for over 30 years, having seen every tragedy that you could imagine, and our people being shot, laying in the street waiting for an ambulance to come, and the people that was jumping out didn't look like us. They had no compassion. I mean, it was horrific. And this Boston uh, incident was just one of many. But what would you do? Well, you have to be prepared to take the necessary step, steps to save a life of somebody you love or even a stranger. It don't matter. And there was a lot of people that would have bled to death because nobody knew how to do a pressure bandage. You know, nobody knew how to take the necessary precautions that a first responder know. And like my son said, you could be a first responder. There's no reason on God's earth that you should let your kid or your relative die because they choke it on a piece of meat. It's a simple maneuver where you could clear the airway, where you could do the proper procedure to keep that person alive. Even when somebody in your home going to cardiac arrest. Do you know how to circulate for them? Do you know how to do compressions? Do you know how to breathe for that person? To keep that person alive until other help arrive, or you can get that person to the hospital. Thousands and thousands of people could be saved all over the United States and around the world. If people knew the fundamentals, what to do in case disaster strikes 
And it's gonna strike. It already has. And it just keeps repeating and repeating. And we keep talking about it. What about the violence in our community? The violence in our community could be reduced if those kids, if the leaders, stop letting these kids lead themselves. We always complain about, oh, it's a lost generation. Who the hell lost them? We lost them. Let's get them back. Let's get in the programs where they learn how to save a life instead of taking a life, which could lead to great careers. When I started this Save a Life Rescue Squad, my first group of responders was reformed alcoholics that I got from the clinics and taught them CPR first aid. And I started dealing with the gang members and teaching them. I started with the Bloods and the Crip. I went into their uh, den, and I told them, listen, guys, we're better than this. And some of them listened, not all of them, but some of them. And if you could save one person's life, one, it's worth your existence. And I have 10 guys that started with me 24 years ago that are now doctors. I got hundreds that are paramedics, thousands that have learned CPR first aid. And I say to you, get a pencil. Get a pencil and take down this number and call me. I will go anywhere in the world to help people start their own save a life in their community. The number is 718-453-4617. That's 718-453-4617. And asked to speak to Brother Rudolph Mohammed or Commander Rocky Robinson. Because the first life you save belonged to you. And then you can reach out to everybody else. I'll bless you and pave the way for you. Thank God. Well, you, you you heard it from, from the founder himself. Now you see where my passion comes from. You see where my um, enthusiasm uh, uh, comes from because I've imitated him for so long that it's, it's almost like uh, uh, it's natural now. But it's sincere because it is my desire now to help and to be a responder and to help teach this to anyone who knows. So, again, as, as, as we said, because, you know what, we're, uh, I'm looking at the time, and it's time for us to close out this segment. Um, but, again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't matter where you are in the United States of America. We're not yellow. We go anywhere. 
We don't, these colors don't run except to where the help needs to be put. We put the help where the hurt is. So if you're in California, if you're in Florida, if you're in Texas, if you're in Idaho, Ohio, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Michigan, Chicago, Washington, Baltimore, Virginia, Colorado, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, wherever you are, if you desire to learn how to become an emergency medical responder, and if you are desirous of someone helping you to start your own community emergency response teams, then you need to pick up that phone and call 718-453-4617. And for those of you in the local area, here, I'm going to tell you this. This is what we're going to do if you're in the local area. If you're in the local area and you call and you want a CPR class, if you want a CPR class in your local, in the New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut, Philadelphia area, and you mention that you heard about this on Rudolph, on Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness on the radio, we will give you, you will get a discount on your CPR class. You will get a discount on your first aid class. We're only going to do that for the first 300 people that call. For the first 300 people, no, let me stop. We're going to do that for anybody that mentions that they heard about this on the radio. We, again, we'll do it. So figure out where you are, again, ge- geographically, and you call us, you talk to us. We'll work out the best and most economical way for us to get to you, to bring the training to you. We will bring it to you. You will be certified that day before we leave. So you will have your emergency medical responder certification, which is federally recognized, and it will start your um, progression, start your path for your community that you live in to have its own community emergency response team. Because... One thing I can guarantee you, just as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, there will be another disaster, and it won't be too long in the future. So don't wait until it actually happens to be yelling and screaming and crying about who should have, could have, would have. Let's respond to it right now, and let's prepare so that when it does happen, we will be ready and able to respond. So, again, in closing this week, uh, I want to leave you with this on your mind. If that were you, what would you want someone to do? If that were a member of your family, what could you do for them? If it happens and you are nearby, what would you be able to do based on your level of understanding 
and your level of knowledge and training at this point. So, again, you don't have to do it through us, but find an agency where you live at. Find a CPR class. Find a first aid class. Get in it. Learn it. Teach it to your children. Teach it to every member of your family because, again, every second counts when it comes to an emergency and when it comes to a person not breathing. And the life you save may be your own. So, again, this is your host, Brother Rudolph Muhammad. The segment is Disaster Awareness for Community Preparedness and it is on every Tuesday from 4 p.m. to 5.15 p.m. on The Keys, 107. And this is Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. May God bless you with a successful and safe week. And if it is the will of the Creator then we will be back next week, same time, same place, same channel. Thank you, and good night.